Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Ohio's Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown is proposing school bus safety measures in new legislation. It's something the state is looking at as well. After numerous crashes involving buses that included injuries just since this school year began, including a fatality near Springfield in which an 11-year-old boy died after being thrown from a bus in a collision. I'll talk with Senator Brown in a moment. There's a free, first-come, first-served pop-up clinic offering medical, dental, and vision care coming to Columbus next weekend. Details on that in about five minutes. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Tracy Townsend looks at the economic development going on in central Ohio and a proposal from Ohio's Republican U.S. Senator J.D. Vance to ban any future mask mandates. And I'll wrap up the hour with a segment about flu vaccines. First up on Columbus Perspective, I had about five minutes to speak with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio, about bus safety and the UAW strike against the big three automakers. Seatbelts on school buses. This is kind of down your alley after the Bluffton University crash. You were involved in bus safety. Yeah, um, 10 years ago or so, more than that, um, the Bluffton uh, uh, baseball team, West uh, College in West Ohio, Western Ohio, uh, we're going to Florida for spring training and the bus crashed. And I teamed up with a Texas Republican and we wrote a bill and took a couple of years to pass it to make those buses safer, the interstate buses that you see um, on interstates mostly. Um, this is a, you know, another step. What do we do here? Do we, we can certainly make the bus manufacturers, uh, school bus manufacturers, bring uh, change their buses so they're more stable, so they're less likely to roll over. We can certainly get them to update their brake technology. Uh, Seatbelts is more complicated. The state legislature, the state, the governor's commission is looking at the best, best most cost-effective way to do that. More complicated than a than a big bus going across country because you've got disabled kids, you've got small kids that um, not sure they'll stay in their seatbelts. We've all driven our own kids or grandkids when they squirm in and out. And I don't, I didn't start the car until my daughters had their seatbelts on. A lot harder to do in a bus. So we need to figure this out. Yeah. And I guess uh, in addition to that, I've, I've read where there's concern that you might even have to have an extra person on the bus to, to check the seatbelts. Like every, every time a kid gets on the bus, make sure they get buckled in and all that stuff. Yeah, and that's, that gets more and more complicated in how much money to do that. Uh, and But you think of the tragedy of the child in Clark County, 11 years old. His parents sent him. It was the first day of school with the excitement or, or dread for kids going back to school. And, and the, the little boy doesn't come home and how tragic that is. So we've got to address those issues. And, you know, we also operate in Ohio, as everybody listening to this knows. We've never had a state legislature. We haven't had a state legislature lately that wants to invest what we should in public education. They're more, they, they want to give tax cuts to rich people more than they want to fund public schools. And that makes this even more complicated, taking money that might go somewhere else and in, in, in investing it in bus safety. So, you know, might have been a new teacher they hired or whatever. So um, complicated issue. We need to figure it out in the, most, in the least partisan way. It shouldn't be partisan at all and figure out how to do this. So you're not necessarily recommending seatbelts. You're just looking, you're, you want to look into it. Our, our bill, our bill has, our bill we introduced has seatbelts. Um, and, you know, there won't be mandatory use of them. You can't tell a kid he has to put it on or expel him from school, obviously. But um, that's the way we start. I'm open to making this work in the best way possible. Ideally, I want seatbelts available. 
Um, I would like, I mean, I, I don't want to put more pressure on the driver. A kid unbuckles it. The driver's not going to walk back six rows and make the, the little boy or girl do it. But I want to figure out the best way we put that out there. Um, understanding the bill almost never passes as is, but it's something we need to debate and think about the best way. And I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, UAW strike. What, what is your take on that? My take is that a dozen years ago, uh, workers gave up a lot at the bargaining table. Um, they were willing to give up a lot to keep the auto companies in business because you remember the Ford didn't get one, but but old Chrysler and GM did. Chrysler's got another name now. And these workers now just and they, they gave up a lot. They set up a tiered wage system. So new workers got paid less, all kinds of things that they didn't like. And I don't like because I always fight for the dignity of work and what what we have now is the auto workers are saying, pay us back. You are immensely profitable companies now. Um, the CEOs of these companies make, I believe, $20 million or more. Um, they have several million-dollar executives. They're doing very well. They're very profitable. Their shareholders are doing well. Their executives in many companies around the country do stock buybacks, and the workers are left behind. And there's no excuse for that. Um, the auto industry needs to come to the table and negotiate fair wages, fair benefits, get rid of that tiered structure where new workers get paid a lot less. There was a case in GM and in a joint venture in, in Lordstown, Ohio, was paying 15 or $16 an hour to workers working in difficult conditions, dealing with chemicals, making these ba- Altium, Altium company making these batteries. That shouldn't stand. We got raises of, of several thousand dollars to 1,100 workers there. But that's not enough, and we've, they've got to do better than they're doing. Senator, thanks so much for your time today. For sure. Uh, thanks, Dave. Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Vicki Gregg, who is the clinic manager for Remote Area Medical, or RAM, which is holding a pop-up clinic next weekend in Columbus. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what RAM is. Uh, RAM um, is a nonprofit that provides uh, free pop-up clinics um, across the United States. Uh, We have medical vision and dental services. In dental, we offer cleanings, fillings, and extractions. We also do dental x-rays as needed. In vision, we do a complete eye exam that includes um, an examination of the blood vessels uh, behind the eye to check for any damage from diabetes or high blood pressure. Uh, Patients are also able to pick out a pair of frames and then we can actually make the glasses on site so the patients can leave with a brand new pair of glasses. If they have a prescription that is stronger than what we carry, then we bring the frames and the prescription back with us to headquarters located here in Tennessee, and we send those glasses to a lab, have them made, and then mail them directly to the patient. Wow. Uh, in medical, we also we do um, general health exams and women's health exams that um, in, that includes a, a pap specimen. Um, and this clinic is offering um, basic lab blood draws, 
so we can check electrolytes, uh, CBCs, um, A1Cs for the diabetics, and those results will be uh, followed up with the patient after the clinic. And this is going to be, it's free, first come, first serve on Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. Yes, that's correct. And this is amazing. You know, I was looking at your schedule, and on the 23rd, you've not only got this pop-up clinic going on in Columbus, you've got one in the state of Georgia and another one in North Carolina. I mean, you're a huge organization. You do this all, all over the country. We do. We typically do about 70 um, pop-up clinics throughout the year. In addition to this, we also have um, a telehealth uh, department. Um, we have uh, we do um, remote telehealth appointments, as well as we've got some uh, local clinics in the Knoxville area where we offer telehealth support uh, for patients. When you organize a pop-up clinic in Columbus, I'm assuming then that for weeks ahead of time you're working to get local doctors involved in this or what? Uh, More like months. Months, (laughs) yeah. We like for uh, a community host group to have 12 to 18 months planning time. Uh, We've determined that that leads to a more successful clinic. In Columbus, we actually work with uh, the Ohio State Ram Chapter. Uh, so that is a group of students that have has formed uh, a RAM chapter on campus. And these students actually travel to various clinics and, and volunteer and help to support us. And this group, uh, this will be, I believe it's either the third or fourth clinic in Columbus that has been organized um, with us through the um, RAM chapter. Wow, that's great. Talking with Vicki Gregg, she's the clinic manager for the Remote Area Medical Pop-Up Clinic, or RAM Pop-Up Clinic, which is going on Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. And this starts bright and early, actually even before sunrise. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what goes on on these days. Well, we come in on that Friday, the 22nd. So we will actually set the clinic up on that day. And the parking lot for the patients will open no later than 11.59 p.m. on Friday night. Um, But I strongly recommend if anybody is wanting one of the specialty services, uh, like dental or vision, that they plan on arriving before then. It's not unusual for patients to start arriving in the afternoon. Wow. Uh, between 3 and 5 p.m. Their patients are parked in the order that they arrive, and they are provided uh, with additional um, information for completing a patient profile. Um, We do have uh, parking lot uh, security that will be on site overnight. Once the patients arrive, they need to plan on staying in their cars overnight. So we recommend uh, packing a cooler with drinks, um, snacks, food, uh, bringing any medication that may be needed, along with a pillow and a blanket, uh, and just plan on camping out in their cars. Um, The doors open at 6 a.m. Saturday and Sunday morning. We will have um, our parking lot crew going from car to car, 
uh, making sure that people are awake, and we text them uh, through a mobile number that's given to us when we're ready for them to come to the front door, much like whenever you um, are on a wait list for a table at a restaurant. Um, we just text them, they come in, um, they go through registration, medical triage, and then we get them to whatever service they are looking for. Wow. It's really, uh, unfortunately, kind of a sad commentary of where we're at with health care in, in some instances in America where some folks, this is their only, their only shot maybe in a long period of time to get something done that needs to be done. It is. It is. Um, our, you know, we look at providing health care to those that are underserved or uninsured, but there are no qualifications uh, to receive services at a RAM clinic. We don't ask uh, for um, insurance information. We don't ask for IDs. Pretty much we have patients that will come from neighboring states uh, if they look on our website and see that if there's a clinic that they can possibly drive to. Wow. So if you've got somebody who, you know, let's say they've, they've got a toothache or a really bad dental situation that needs to be taken care of, but also maybe they have diabetes and vision problems, unfortunately, they have to kind of pick one over the other to get treated, right? They do, they do, and we limit the dental or vision services simply because we want everybody that comes to get one of the specialty services. Right. So they they need to pick the problem that is the most um, uh, acute. Uh, again, you mentioned a toothache. So they could come in for dental, and medical is available to every patient that comes. There's there's no cap on medical. So, you know, if they do have diabetes, they would be able to go to medical and get um, treatment there if they need prescriptions refilled. And then they once they finish either dental or vision, they're welcome to come back around to the parking lot and see if there are any uh, tickets left for the other service if they want to try to get whichever service that, that they weren't able to get on Saturday. Right. And then they always have the option of, you know, coming back Sunday morning, but there again, that means repeating the same process that they went through on Friday night. So uh, as uh, people get lined up for this and stay overnight in their cars, do you kind of keep track of how many are waiting so that you have a, a proper cutoff time so you're not leaving folks in line when time runs out? We do. We do. And we look at the number of of, uh, professionals that we have volunteering each day, and we do a calculation on how many patients can be served in either dental or vision. And so we have a cap number. And once that number is reached, the, the parking lot crew will start telling people that that service is no longer available. They can ask for the other service if it's still available. And if both of them are filled to capacity, then the patients, you know, they can stay for medical if they would like, or they can go back home and come back Sunday uh, in order to try to get one of those specialty services. Talking with Vicki Gregg from Remote Area Medical, uh, it's RAM, the, their pop-up clinic, which is, again, Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School in Columbus. This must really be rewarding work for the folks who are involved in this. It is. I've been involved with RAM uh, for about, I don't know, 17 years. Wow. Um, I've been 
with them full time um, a little over eight and a half years, and before that, I volunteered about eight years um, and worked in the triage area. My background is nursing. Um, we have dedicated volunteers that have come to clinics and they have learned to run an area of each clinic. We we refer to them as core volunteers. So they travel with us and all of their their, their travel costs are are covered and the community host group provides lodging for all of us. That's really the only thing that we ask for. They don't have to pay to get us to come to a community. Hmm. We just ask for lodging and we ask for food for all the volunteers over the course of the weekend. But we have providers that are so dedicated, and not just providers, general support, that will go to multiple clinics throughout the year just because they are so dedicated to giving back to people that need them. That's fantastic. So in your 17 years involved in this, are you seeing any changes in, in the demand or in the needs? Uh, of course, there, you know, there was a decrease in um, clinics, uh, you know, going coming out of COVID. Right. Uh, but honestly, we are back up to about the same number of clinics that we were doing pre-COVID. Our founder, Mr. Stan Brock, um, used to say that you could close your eyes and put your finger on a map and guarantee there's a need for services there. Hmm. You know, it's across the United States. And we are there, RAM is there, just to provide um, a bridge for that gap as long as we're needed. It's amazing. I mean, you're saving some folks from, you know, undoubtedly trips to the emergency room, even though you know it may not be a life or death situation. That's where a lot of people resort to when they need help. And It is, especially with dental care. Yeah. yeah. And you're talking about a financial wipeout for the rest of the year when that happens to them. Pretty much. We have a lot of patients that use us as their primary care. Um, you know, they come once a year uh, and they see a medical doctor. They, If, if, if it's a female, they do women's health. Um, if they need um, a cleaning, they're able to receive that service at a clinic. Um if they have a cavity, they're able to get that filling put in. Um, if they need to have their eye exam, you know, annually, they'll come and get their eyes examined and get a new pair of glasses. Um, and then we have other patients that come to uh, several clinics throughout the year. If they're able to drive, um, they will they will come to get what they need. Mm. Talking again with Vicki Gregg from RAM, Remote Area Medical. Uh, and again, their pop-up clinic is Saturday and Sunday, September 23rd and 24th at East High School. Vicki, if folks uh, want to find out more about this, do you have information online where they can access it? Yes, our website is um, ramusa.org. That's ramusa.org. Um, they can go to that location, uh, click on our clinic schedule, and then go to the Columbus Clinic, and it'll bring up more information about the parking lot um, and and things like that. And then they, they can also call headquarters at 865-579-1530. 
And if they have any specific questions uh, regarding um, services, you know, we're here to answer any questions. Okay. Uh, Vicki Gregg again with RAM. Thanks so much for your time, and we sure appreciate the effort that you make to help folks here locally. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. We're looking forward to coming back to Columbus. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I'm Tracy Townsend. Central Ohio's rapid growth. Thousands of jobs are coming here. Families are starting to move in. And there's a buzz around town. But with all of that growth comes change and solutions to some new problems. This morning, the new senior vice president of research at The Ohio State University here to talk about how OSU is training the next round of high-tech workers. The battle over district maps. Why a group asked the Supreme Court to throw out their lawsuit and the change being debated this week. Plus, should the government be allowed to mandate masks? One of our state's U.S. senators says no. Well, this morning, his colleagues across the aisle are questioning his reasoning. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Tracy Townsend. This is Face the State. We're going to talk about all of those controversial congressional districts and the mask mandates in just a moment. But first, let's talk about that big business boom. When it comes to growth, Columbus is vastly outpacing the rest of the state, quickly expanding as companies look to invest in the Midwest. It's hard to say exactly how much uh, at this point, um, but we do expect that the growth will be accelerated due to Um, recent economic development announcements. But with all that growth comes new challenges. We need more support for people who want to purchase homes or to stay in their home. And a clear need to train the next generation. Starting even before high school, middle school, elementary school, so that the students across Ohio understand that these are incredibly important, incredibly well-paying, and incredibly long-term and sustainable jobs for Ohio. 
All of that sounds so exciting. And this morning, we are looking to learn more all about that from Peter Moeller, who's the vice president for research at The Ohio State University. And I can imagine parents hearing you say sustainable jobs. I can my child can go learn there at The Ohio State University. Tell us more. This is um, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for Ohioans. Um, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for students, um, whether they're entering college or they're K through 12. We are going to see a massive, massive growth of jobs in this sector: um, semiconductors, microelectronics. You know, so we need to be ready, and we need to be evolving our educational system to be able to do that. Whether that's K through 12 mm-hmm. or what we're doing at the university. So let's talk a little bit about that. K through 12 involvement, evolution, if you will. Where does that need to start? I mean, I imagine we have to, our teachers need to be trained to teach differently. That's right. And so I think, you know, one statistic that I hear often is 30% of the jobs by the end of this decade, we don't even know what those jobs look like, right? And so if you're someone that's in second or third grade, Mm -hmm. to be a teacher of those second and third graders, how do you teach and how do you prepare? So we are spending a lot of time with a program called STEAM Rising, that basically teaches the teachers what are these jobs that we're going to see you know what is the workforce going to look like and how do we think about not just what's happening in Ohio State but working with partners throughout the state whether that's um, Columbus State University or a lot of our technical schools to be able to better prepare that you may not necessarily want to do research in this area but you may want to be in manufacturing you want to be in learning or education and so um Let's fast forward to college. What's going to happen on campus? So a lot is happening at Ohio State, and a lot is happening with partners. So typically, we might be at odds with a university in the school up north or <laughs> at Indiana. or uh-huh. but, but we've created at Ohio State a way to work with colleges and, and, and technical schools and community sites to be able to work together to create and scale the workforce that we're going to need. Mm-hmm. When we think about Intel over the next few years, thousands and thousands of jobs. Some of them are going to require a master's degree or a PhD or an advanced degree. A lot of them are going to require a technical technical degree. So we need to think of this the way we think about training someone who might be specializing in nursing and the types of demand that we need for have for nurses that we all know about, mm-hmm. we're going to see the same thing in this technical area. So a lot of collaboration, a lot of new majors and minors, a lot of certificates, but it, you know things that we're doing at Ohio State today, you didn't even see two years ago. And so when you got into education, I mean, is this the sort of thing you could have imagined? This is, um, I would say this is a blast. And I think for all of us at Ohio State, and partners around the region, um, this is a chance for Ohio State to continue to take the lead in an area that is going to dominate a lot of our economic sector for the next 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. We have had success, again, at Ohio State, but the success has been by working, again, across the state, across um, with our federal partners, Mm -hmm. to be able to make sure that we're not only addressing the workforce needs, but some of the things that are involved in research and development. So how is it that we can explore the new ways to develop the next level of semiconductor, the most advanced level that we are able to compete with groups not only around Ohio, but that the United States can continue to be a leader in this area. Isn't it amazing that that's going to happen? I mean, sort of the hub is going to be here in Columbus. It is, and I think it takes... It really, you know, it, it takes a group and a committed partnership of people to do that. Um, 
we're excited um, for our faculty that they have really taken the lead in developing and doing sort of relearning and retooling in a lot of their courses. A lot of this is development of online courses, but to your point earlier, this has got to be really a community-based and a community-driven um, effort to make sure that this doesn't simply start at the university level or the college level, that we are taking this on where, again, someone in the Columbus City Schools sees that you know in five or six years, they can have a well-paid job coming out of a technical degree that staying right here in Columbus, Ohio, or somewhere in central Ohio. And I might be biased here, but Ohio State having some answers at a time when many people are looking for those kinds of answers. That's right. And again, beyond simply what we're doing in research and education, evolving the university in ways that you know we're working with directly with our partners, and whether it's the General Assembly or across the state of Ohio, to really look at what does Ohio need, what is the you know, beyond what the university needs, what is the what do the feds need mm -hmm. to be able to make sure that you know the United States and, the, and, and Central Ohio and the state of Ohio continue to be prosperous, and we're sort of at the the tip of that sword. It's so great to hear, and we look forward to what's next. Thank you so much for thank coming you in. so much. We appreciate that. All right, we're going to move on and talk more about this growth. You know, it's projected that Central Ohio's population is more than three million people in the next thirty years. Think about that. Columbus is the ninth fastest growing metro in the nation. Most of that growth is being driven by Intel's landmark investment in Central Ohio. The tech company is building two new factories to make semiconductors. There's the potential for six additional plants to be built on the Licking County site. It spans 1,000 acres, construction well underway, marking one year yesterday since the groundbreaking, which, remember, it included a presidential visit. President Biden saying last year it's part of his larger plan to bring more manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. Folks, the future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Made in America. And folks at home should know the manufacture of these semiconductors connects countless small businesses and manufacturers into a supply chain that's going to thrive all because of this law. In fact, Intel is planning to hire 3,000 people, although it's not just limited to one company. It's estimated tens of thousands of jobs will be required to support the factories. Meantime, Google is adding an additional $1.7 billion to its Central Ohio investments. The company needs new data centers and is adding hundreds of jobs. They will be built on the same New Albany site just a few miles away from Intel. The investment is being spread out among three data centers, including others in Lancaster and South Columbus. Google's continued investment in technical infrastructure, including data centers like this one, play a critical role in supporting the company's AI innovations in our growing Google Cloud business. They help power digital services that people and businesses use every day, like Google Cloud, Gmail, Search, Maps, and more. Amazon also joins Google in building data centers here. The company will spend $8 billion on data centers, expanding its current footprint. Honda is adding new plants to build electric vehicle batteries, turning Ohio into a sort of hub for the car maker. An estimated 2,200 employees will be hired to work at a new Fayette County plant. Hiring for all four companies is underway, including some jobs that start by the end of next year. All of those families and people 
Well, they need somewhere to live. With business growth comes growing pains. And 10TV's Kevin Landers explains now that it's creating a big challenge. Central Ohio is booming as more companies move here and expand here. There's no better place in the world to see all of that happening than the Columbus region. Um, Intel is an example of that in the semiconductor field. Uh, what Honda and LG are doing in electric vehicles. Um, what Illuminate USA is doing in uh, solar panel assembly uh, out in Pataskala. Kenny McDonald uh, runs the Columbus Partnership, which works with Central Ohio businesses to attract more companies to move here. Already, Columbus is home to companies from across the globe who have made Central Ohio their headquarters. We're trying to redefine the paradigm of what it means to be successful trying to build the most prosperous place in the country. So far, so good. We've become one of the top 10 markets in North America for cloud computing. With Intel expected to start operations in late 2025, the central Ohio region will be forever changed as more businesses flow here to supply the computer chip giant. I see that happening not just in downtown Columbus, but in downtown Marysville, in Delaware, and Newark, and Circleville. He says there are growing pains that need to be addressed. I think the next five years are very critical. I think that um, if we look at our energy plans, our transit plans, our housing plans, uh, the ability to deliver water and wastewater across our region and do that in a sustainable way um, is really, really critical the next four or five years. Finding housing is a major issue in our region. A 2022 report funded by the Building Industry Association of Central Ohio concluded that Greater Columbus needs to double the number of homes it constructs over the next decade to meet the demand from eight 8,000 to 9,000 homes a year to 14,000 to 19,000. Home values are already at record highs in large part because there is less of it. McDonald says as more companies discover central Ohio, demands on housing and transportation will only intensify. I would bet on more people living downtown in the next 10 years than we've had in the last 50 in downtown Columbus. So I'm uh, I'm one that believes that the, the uh, downtown's goal of having 40,000 people live in downtown Columbus is very achievable. The transformation of office space into housing like this one on East Gay Street has already begun, but the transformation of transportation in the region, McDonald says, is more complicated. Transit's never been more important. I mean any type of transit. In the downtown neighborhood of Columbus, that can be improved bike lanes. We want to look at using technology, whether that's light rail or that's a rapid bus line. Um, we should have everything on the table thinking about how we're going to move uh, people. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. And of course, you heard Kevin mention the challenge of not having enough homes. There's also the explosive growth in prices. The median sale price in Columbus is up 135% in the last decade. And that's not keeping people from buying. The market is one of the top five in the country with inventory at record lows and all the demand those companies are creating with new jobs. The quick rise in demand for housing is creating major problems for people who can no longer afford to live in central Ohio. This fall, state senators are gathering to hear about the issues and look into solutions. Lawmakers are looking into problem areas, including the shortage of housing, rising inflation, taxes, and the highly competitive rental market. Republican State Senator Michelle Reynolds chairs the committee. So the point and the role of the committee is to really take a, a look and see what are some of the problems, what is the scope of the problem, and what 
is the role of the legislature as it relates to addressing this problem. Rent in Ohio increased by 10% over the last decade. As rents increase faster than incomes, many renters are finding themselves on the brink of eviction and homelessness. While more multifamily housing is being built, there still not enough affordable rental units. We asked Senator Reynolds about some possible solutions. There's no silver bullets here, um, and we are listening, and we are looking for those solutions. One of the things that we heard in our last uh, committee meeting is that, you know, there are other states who have experienced this same exact issue, and they're similarly situated to, you know, our population, our demographics, like Austin, Texas, and they addressed it differently. And so I want to know what's what works, right? And, and what is the role of the legislature? What is the role of our local governments? What is the role of the landlord community, our tenants, our nonprofits, advocates? You know, so we need to look at this holistically. And what I'd like to do is reimagine housing in Ohio. I'd like us to build this mosaic and then determine what we all need to do our little piece to be able to make sure that we can make those fixes so that housing can be accessible, affordable, safe, and that people can live the American dream. The bipartisan committee of five state senators will continue to meet throughout the session. Ohio will keep its unconstitutional congressional maps for next year's election. The Ohio voting rights groups that brought forward challenges to change the maps this year asked the Supreme Court to dismiss its case. The court previously found the maps unconstitutional for unfairly favoring Republicans. They will need to be redrawn after the 2024 election. The legal dispute has now taken over two years. The state Supreme Court previously threw out two separate congressional maps and five sets of state maps. A spokesperson for the group that challenged the congressional map says they want to focus on the state house and state Senate maps. All right, still to come this Sunday morning as cases increase, the debate over COVID masking is resurfacing. We cannot repeat the anxiety, the stress, and the nonstop panic of the last couple of years. That's what this legislation is about. End the mandates, end the panic, and let's get back to some common sense. Mr. President, I yield. Ohio's junior Senator J.D. Vance introducing legislation to ban federal officials from mandating masks. But does it have any chance of making it through the Capitol into the president's desk? And what the senator had to say about his claims, Democrats are already trying to reinstate mandates. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Mom's early Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. And when I left the oven on, we decided together that it was time to see a doctor and make a plan. Early detection gave us more time to seek out information and support as a family. If you or your family are noticing changes, it could be Alzheimer's. Talk about seeing a doctor together. For more information, visit alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The elderly and those with underlying conditions may want to, as the cases increase, to wear a mask when they're in indoor settings, particularly when there are crowds, and I'm not talking about mandating anything. 
A very familiar face during the pandemic, Dr. Anthony Fauci, talking about the recent increases in COVID cases and the heated topic of mask usage. Nationwide, there are a few hospitals, schools, and a Hollywood studio requiring masks again. However, many health officials do not expect mask use to become a widespread practice. Ohio's U.S. Senator J.D. Vance wants to make sure the federal government cannot force that. His bill would ban federal officials from issuing mask mandates for schools, air travel, and public transit. It also prevents those institutions from refusing service to anyone choosing not to wear a mask. Senator Vance claims that masks caused problems for people and did very little to slow the virus. So we've proposed some legislation that would stop that movement dead in its tracks. Uh, I don't begrudge anybody for getting anything wrong the last couple of years. I got things wrong about COVID. I'm sure nearly everybody did. But we have to learn from our mistakes and not try to repeat them. In 2023, we should not be imposing mask mandates on our country. Thursday afternoon, Democrats did oppose the bill, blocking Vance's hope for unanimous passage. The legislation must now work its way through committees before possibly returning to the full Senate floor. Senator Vance said when filing the bill, if that happened, it showed that Democrats plan to bring back masks, saying, quote, they must be planning to reinstate mask mandates. We asked Senator Vance's colleague, Ohio Democrat Sherrod Brown, about possible mandates. I don't know of anybody. The pandemic's pretty much over. I don't know of anybody that's in government or out of government that's suggesting mass mandates. So it's not something about to happen. We also questioned Senator Vance about the evidence he sees that Democratic lawmakers are planning to impose mandates again. If people don't think mask mandates are coming back, then why object to the legislation? If you don't think something's a problem, then why make it a problem by objecting to the legislation? That's all we're really asking the Democrats to do is give people some assurance that these mandates aren't coming back. The, the, the problem here, the reason to do this is that you do have a lot of federal bureaucrats and recent federal bureaucrats promising the return to mask mandates. Uh, a local official, uh, excuse me, Anthony Fauci, of course, until recently a very senior public health official, actually encouraging the return of mask mandates on national TV last week. You have local schools here in the D.C. area, federally funded, already reimposing mask mandates. So this is not an academic exercise. There are people trying to reimpose these mandates. We should stop it dead in its tracks. And, and look, I agree with Senator Brown. There's a bipartisan consensus here that COVID is over and we shouldn't bring back these mask mandates. The question is, are, are Democrats willing to do what is required of that bipartisan consensus by letting this legislation move through. Here in Ohio, there are measures in place limiting the government's ability to act during a pandemic. A state law now blocks the health department from issuing any kind of stay-at-home order. It also allows the 132 lawmakers in the state house to vote down health orders or emergency declarations without needing the governor's approval. Next, a roaring surprise for a Gahanna Lincoln teacher, and there's a new face for Face the State. You want to feel important. You want to be a part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm a wife and the mother of two kids. And I've got a good job. Bye, Mom. See you, Mom. A pretty important job. Because of my family and my job, 
I really care about this neighborhood. It's a good neighborhood. Yes, there's some crime. And when I drive to work, like now, I realize that some people here don't trust the police. So the police should be reaching out to this community. And this community should reach out to the police. That's the way to make this a safer place. And when I get to work in the precinct house and put on my uniform, I can tell you as a police officer that this department is reaching out to the community and the community is doing its part. We're building partnerships. This should be happening everywhere. This is how we can all be safer. Get involved. Start the conversation. Start the conversation and help stop crime. To learn the five things you can do, go to ncpc.org slash preventviolentcrime. A message from the National Crime Prevention Council and the Bureau of Justice Assistance. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Celebration at Kahana Lincoln High School, broadcast journalism teacher and former 10 TV news producer Mark Lowry is Ohio's Teacher of the Year. It's an honor awarded by the State Board of Education. Lowry started at the school five years ago. In that time, he's created four new courses and increased television class enrollment from 27 students to more than 130. His students have won numerous awards. But what I hope the judges saw when I did my presentation stuff is that I'm just compassionate and I am enthused about what I do. And I don't feel like I've ever worked a day of school in my life. Um, I enjoy being here. So wonderful to hear. As the State Teacher of the Year, Lowry will represent Ohio in the 2024 National Teacher of the Year selection program, and we certainly wish him the best. Later this month, there will be a new face joining you every Sunday. 10TV is excited to welcome Doug Petcash to Columbus and the Face the State desk. And Doug is here now for a little bit of an introduction. You're going to be focused on covering the mm-hmm. State House, politics, public affairs. Tell us about your passion for reporting on those issues. You know, I really feel like whether it's on the federal state or local level. These are the folks who make the decisions that affect every one of our lives. And to be able to have the opportunity to, you know, on occasion hold them accountable for those decisions, but also have them explain the decisions that affect us and also that opportunity to inform people about the decisions that are being made on their behalf mm-hmm. is really important to me. And so it's, it's good to get into the halls of the state capitol or, you know, in their offices and talk to them about those important things. I might be a little biased, but the state house here is beautiful. It and is. I know you got to tour it. So it what is. do you think? Uh, it's very different than the one in Idaho. Um, the the lower level, the underground with mm-hmm. the, the brick archways, and it's just it's a spectacular building. It really is pretty. And so many things to see there, too, not mm-hmm. just the politics, but the museums and the galleries yes. and, and all of that. And yeah. to do there. People have wedding receptions and that sort of thing there, too. It's a good place. Well, uh, so you're coming to us from our sister station in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about Central Ohio? Everybody wants to know that you love it here. I do love it here. I've been here two weeks mm-hmm. so far, um, but have visited several times, and I've been really getting the opportunity to get out, explore the city a little bit. Um, people have been very welcoming. I love that and helpful. Hey, you got to check this out. You got to check that out. Um, and, you know, for 33 years of my career, I've been far from home, mm-hmm. um, crisscrossing the country and whatever. I grew up in Pittsburgh. My family's still there. This was an opportunity to get a little bit closer, but not like right next door. Right, <laughs> you know? right. I could take a three-hour drive home mm-hmm. to see mom and dad. And, um, boy, just the opportunity to work with this team mm-hmm. of dedicated journalists and you know passionate people who love their community. It's great to be part of that. Well, we're glad you're here. We welcome you, and we know Central Ohio will welcome you, too. Looking so, forward to meeting awesome. a lot of people. All right. 
Well, thank you for being here with us today. We will see you next Sunday. And as I always say, have a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at For more than 75 years, Paralyzed Veterans of America has kept a promise to never leave a fallen hero behind. That's why Paralyzed Veterans of America is providing specialized medical care, life-changing treatments, benefits our heroes earned, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. Our Paralyzed Veterans have helped us live the lives we enjoy today. It's our turn to give them the best lives possible. To learn more, go to pva.org today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James. On the phone with me is Dr. Greg Sylvester, who is the Chief Health Officer for a company called Securus. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on today. Thanks for talking to us. What is Securus? Well, Securus is one of the largest vaccine manufacturers in the world. We actually have manufacturing plants here in the United States and in England and as well as in Australia. Okay. And being connected with Australia is interesting because from what I understand, we have kind of an interesting uh, contact point with Australia every year when it comes to what to expect from the flu. Well, that's a really good point. You know, um, influenza viruses circulate year-round, but we typically see influenza seasons during the cold winter months, right? And so if, if the southern hemisphere is coming out of their winter, they're just finishing up on their flu season. So we keep a close eye. I actually have 40 people that work for me in Australia, and they keep me up to date on what's happening with flu in Australia. And what they are telling me is that they saw an early season where there was a high amount of cases. It started to dip down, but then it remained sustained. Early on, it was affecting a lot of pediatric patients, especially in their teens. So we keep a close eye on what happens in the Southern Hemisphere because oftentimes it predicts what may occur here in the Northern Hemisphere during our flu season, which is almost upon us. It typically starts in November, December, January, and February, and this is perfect September and October to go out and get your vaccine for influenza to prevent the flu during the flu season. Is there an indication of the likely strain and how vicious it might be this year? Well, I will tell you that the 
World Health Organization with a number of other agencies, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, all of them work together and do a really marvelous job in doing surveillance. And they get the world's experts together and make a decision about six months before the season starts and says, this is what we believe will be the most predominant circulating strains and they give four of those to all of the influenza manufacturers and then we go and manufacture the vaccine to their specifications so they've told us that we need to have two influenza a strains and two influenza b strains in this year's vaccine and we have that and we've manufactured them and now we've shipped them and they're in in physicians offices public health clinics and pharmacies around around the country and certainly there in Ohio. I was surprised before the pandemic uh, seeing, uh, you know, the percent of adults in the U.S. who get a flu shot, and it's not very high, not as high as I would have thought that it would have been. What do you attribute that to? No, it, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I'm not here to do any scare tactics. Flu can be very mild. It can be moderate or it can be severe. There's a wonderful group called um, Families Against Flu, and you get on their website. It's a it's a volunteer organization, and they talk about some of these horrible stories. And thank goodness there's that this doesn't happen to everybody with influenza. But we can't always guarantee that healthy people won't get severe flu. And so people say, oh, I, I got flu last year, and I'm not going to get it this year. And so there is a little bit of, of not being lazy, but just avoiding it. And and uh, it, it's a recommendation by the CDC and by a number of medical societies that say, if you really want to prevent the severe complications of influenza, then get an annual flu shot. It was about 60%. That's the number you're referring to pre-pandemic. It's actually lower than that now. It's back to the 2012-2013 rate, which is about 10% lower than what we just spoke about. So it would be marvelous if we could get our rates up. We had over 300,000 people hospitalized last year with influenza, so it would be really good to be able to vaccinate and reduce that number for this year. Talking with Dr. Greg Sylvester, Chief Health Officer for Securus, a flu vaccine provider. Uh, So what does uh, the coronavirus do to complicate all this stuff? (laughs) Well, you know, those are the, the... Coronavirus is also, well, it's also an RNA virus as, as flu is. And, and in, in fairness, it's an acute respiratory infection, just like flu and just like respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. And last year, all three of them were causing problems in our healthcare system. And so we had children and adults with RSV. We had children and adults with influenza. And we even had children and adults with, with COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. And so this year, we have better we have better tools against that. Uh, the influenza vaccine is is out there and ready to go. We'll soon get a monovalent or a new booster um, to for COVID. And for those that are um, older adults, they can actually talk to their healthcare provider or their pharmacist about an RSV shot. So, so there's there are tools to prevent those diseases, but they like to be around at the same time in the winter, which makes it worse for all of us. 
You know, it's uh, some over-the-counter medications or even just some of these uh, supplements, you know, that are not necessarily medications can interact with each other and cause negative impacts. How do we know that a a COVID vaccine isn't going to mesh well with a flu vaccine? Maybe not even this, this year's flu vaccine, but maybe one, two years from now. Yeah, so I will say that's a a very good question. And I would say that my best friend now oftentimes is my pharmacist. And so if I take something over-the-counter off the the shelf, I'll go and I'll say, you know, I had my flu shot yesterday or whatever. What do you think about this? And they can help me with, well, I don't think that will particularly be helpful or this one may be better and all of that. I'm not sure there will be the world's experts in co-administration. There are world's experts that recommend vaccines and they have looked at the idea of giving a COVID vaccine and an influenza together and separately and they don't see a difference and they continue to monitor and do surveillance on that. So right now, it is appropriate to be vaccinated for both during one visit, if you prefer, if you would like to do that. There's nothing wrong with getting your flu shot and coming back a week later for your COVID shot or vice versa. But I I will say that there are experts here in the United States and around the globe that look at adverse events and interactions on a regular and routine basis. And if they see something, They'll let all of us know. If people are on the fence about getting a vaccine, who are the people who really should get one? Well, I will say that the best person to talk to is not to me and maybe not to you. It's really a trusted health care provider that they believe in, whether it's their local pharmacist, whether it's their primary care doctor, whether they go to their public health clinic that's around the corner. They're the trusted health care professional is where they should really be getting most of their really good information. But we do know that very young children who have immature immune systems and older adults where their immune system is starting to wane and get a little bit frail, those two groups have higher rates of influenza and the complications to flu because their immune systems are no longer able to or haven't been able to fight it yet or have fought the good fight and now are are getting tired. Those with chronic disease or immunosuppressed are in the middle and we need those to be vaccinated. Those are the top three groups that should always get an annual vaccine. But in fact, anyone six months and older should be offered an influenza vaccine on an annual basis. And the CDC and all the medical societies in the primary care field um, recommend an annual flu vaccine for anyone six months and older. And just a moment or so to go here, I did want to ask you real quick, because of the pandemic and and, and all the vaccines that were, uh, you know, put together quickly, have we learned a lot? Are there going to be differences going forward with how vaccines are put together and, and how they work? Yeah, I think that um, I, I think that we all thought that that um, our friends at Moderna and our friends at Pfizer came up with these overnight, and there was a twenty-year history there with these um, these companies and working with other people, scientists and researchers around the globe. So, as uh, thank goodness they were working with everyone for twenty years, so that we could get out of the pandemic. But I do think that these new platforms that they're on have some interest in looking at other types of viruses or bacteria that could be on them in the future. It's a little too early to tell, but I think that um, that people will continue to look for 
more efficient and better ways to administer vaccines as we go forward. Dr. Greg Sylvester, Chief Health Officer for Securus. Uh, if folks want more information online about uh, flu vaccines, where do they find it, doctor? Well, I think a wonderful place is flu.com, F-L-U dot C-O-M. That'll talk about the virus. It'll talk about uh, vaccines. It'll talk about other preventive measures or cdc.gov. Either one will give you a lot of good information and reliable and trusted information on influenza and ways to prevent it. The number one way is to get an annual flu vaccine. Okay. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. My pleasure, David. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.